Hello and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. This is episode three, in which we look at chapter two of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, titled What Lucy Found There. And before we uh, go further into Narnia with Lucy to discover more about her relationship with Tumnus and everything she experiences there, I want to extend a little further a conversation that was begun last week, talking about chapter one of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with G.K. Chesterton's chapter in Orthodoxy titled The Ethics of Elfland, because as Lewis says in the dedication to the book, there is a sense of the wonder of fairy tales that is necessary and essential for our growth as people, for us to be able to learn and grow and become who we were always meant to be. Fairy tales, stories, parables, poetry, these things help startle us awake to the real wonder and truth of the story of God. And so I mentioned Chesterton last week as one of the persons that Lewis modeled his writing after and Lewis looked up to. I want to return to something Chesterton said as we consider Lucy's journey into Narnia and her discovery there and some of the things that will come to bear as she discovers more about Narnia. One of those things, which will be a centerpiece of chapter two, what Lucy found there, is who Lucy is. That last week, chapter one of the novel, we discover Lucy and Edmund and Susan and Peter as ordinary British boys and girls. But now that we are entering into this wonderful land of Narnia, we start to discover that each of those characters is much more than who they simply appear to be. And in fact, that is a trick or a uh, device that... Satan uses, and in the novels, the White Witch uses, to try to keep us from discovering who we really are. Later on in the novel, it'll say that one of the White Witch's tricks is that she can make something appear to be that which it is not. And I think that ploy, that scheme of evil, can work in ways that are quite subtle for us, where we can be led to believe that we are something that we are not, or that what we really are is something that can be reduced merely to our material reality, that we are merely skin and bones, that I am just nothing but molecules in motion doing what it does at these temperatures. I'm nothing but a product of so many different mutations over time. In fact, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, one of the most famous passages of the entire series comes when Ramandu, the retired star, rebukes Eustace, who says, in our world, a star is just a burning ball of gas. And Ramandu says to Eustace, even in your world, even in your world, that is not what a star is, but simply what it is made of. And so there is this materialistic, reductionistic sense that all we are is our occupations, our GPAs, our relationships, our statuses, and so on. And what Lucy is discovering as she moves through the wardrobe and meets the characters there, is that she is far more than what she had always thought she was. That she has a destiny ahead of her. She has a throne ahead of her at Care Paravel. And as Tumnus would say, she is a daughter of Eve. That is the title for humans in Narnia, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, which connects our identities to something much grander than our mere contexts that we are simply citizens of a particular nation, students of a particular school, employees at a particular job. 
that we are much, much more than that with who we are as humans. And we'll get into that with Tumnus's interactions with Lucy. Before we do, I want to tap back into something Chesterton said in Ethics of Elfland about how fairy tales can remind us of who and what we really are by showing us what we are in broad, vibrant colors. By making everything large and big and massive, we are able to see more clearly what is really real, what we truly are. You have Philip and Prince Philip and the Dragon stories. You have... Beauty and the Beast stories. You have um, giants and escapes and daring sword fights. These are grand notions of battles and wars that we are waging constantly in our ordinary lives. We just might not be able to see them, but that doesn't mean that they're not there. A blind man does not negate the existence of the sun, Doug Wilson says. Just because he can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. So I'd like to quote a passage from Chesterton just to remind us of this power that fairy tale has, this power that Narnia has on us as we move further into it with Lucy and discover Tumnus in chapter two. This is Chesterton in Orthodoxy. Just as we all like love tales, we all like astonishing tales because they touch the nerve of the ancient instinct of astonishment. This is proved by the fact that when we are very young children, we do not need fairy tales. We only need tales. Mere life is interesting enough. A child of seven is excited by being told that Tommy opened a door and saw a dragon. But a child of three is excited by being told that Tommy opened a door. Boys like romantic tales, but babies like realistic tales because they find them romantic. This proves that even nursery tales only echo an almost prenatal leap of interest and amazement. These tales say that apples were golden only to refresh the forgotten moment when we found that they were green. They make rivers run with wine only to make us remember for one wild moment that they run with water. And later on, Chesterton says, we are all under the same mental calamity. We have all forgotten our names. We have all forgotten what we really are. All that we call common sense and rationality and practicality and positivism only means that for certain dead levels of our life, we forget that we have forgotten. All that we call spirit and art and ecstasy only means that for one awful instant, we remember that we forget. It's a beautiful statement from Orthodox from Orthodoxy by Chesterton that we have forgotten who and what we really are. Romans 1, Paul says, we suppress the truth. We don't want to encounter the self. We don't want to know what we really are. And so many stories throughout our history show this in action. Narciss- Narcissus falling in love with his own reflection not wanting to realize the actual sin and lust and selfishness that pervades his heart. He's fallen in love with a mere face. The picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde portrays the same thing, falling in love with an artificial identity, falling in love with a flattened portrait of what we are rather than the full-blooded reality of what we are. And Chesterton gets it right, and Lewis gets it right by having Lucy discover that she is not a mere child but rather she is a daughter of Eve and she is the future queen Lucy, the valiant of Narnia, seated at Caer Paravel. 
And so it's with that that I'd like to begin with chapter two, what Lucy found there. Last week, we saw in chapter one how she moves further in, further in, further in through the wardrobe and discovers what is probably one of the most famous and most memorable and most iconic images of Narnia, and that is the lamppost at Lantern Waste, the far western boundary of Narnia. And Lucy stumbles through the wardrobe and sees this beautiful, eternally lit lamppost, which the origin of that lamppost, Lewis describes in The Magician's Nephew, how Jadis returns to Narnia with a, a, a metal bar from a lamppost in London, and it falls to the ground and the lamppost grows out of it in the middle of this forest. And so we open in chapter two with the conversation between Lucy and Tumnus, the fawn, and he's picking up the parcels he had dropped and they exchange pleasantries. But right at the beginning, Tumnus says, good evening, good evening, said the fawn. Excuse me, I don't want to be inquisitive, but should I be right in thinking that you are a daughter of Eve? And that's the first time we see that phrase occurring. And it's one that will be used throughout Uh, Aslan uses it, sons of Adam, he calls Peter and Edmund, daughters of Eve, he calls Susan and Lucy. And like I mentioned earlier, this is that first indication that Lucy has much to learn, that her journey through the wardrobe is a journey of education. And in fact, that would be one of the entire purposes of education. We must teach our children who and what they really are. They are image bearers of God. They are destined for a glorious purpose in God's great narrative. And they need to believe that even if they can't see it, just like Lucy had to believe before she could see. And here we get this beautiful thread that Lucy is connected with Eve, that she, by virtue of being human, which is going to be a concern for Tumnus, because as we will find out, he is tasked with kidnapping any human that creeps into Narnia and turning him or her over to the white witch. But here the daughter of Eve signal is one of the first steps for Lucy to discovering who she really is. And she responds confused. My name's Lucy. And he says, but you are what they call a girl. She says, of course I'm a girl. And then we get one of the great lines from Tumnus. He says, you are in fact human. And that word is even capitalized in the text from Lewis. That word and that phrase strikes a huge chord with what I mentioned already about this process of education. What does it mean to learn and grow and gain wisdom? What does that mean? Last week, we talked about returning to a childlike sense of wonder for the magical and for the virtuous and the wondrous. That's certainly part of our education. We must remember our own youthfulness in our own childlike state of astonishment. And fairy tales help with that, certainly. But also the question that Tumnus raises, and which is, what is man? What is a man? The novel Frankenstein by Mary Shelley puts forward this question. What does it mean to be human? Uh, so many philosophers throughout Western civilization have grappled with this question of what makes man different from the animals, what makes man distinct What are we made in the image of God? Are we merely highly evolved beings? What is the relationship between our soul and our body? This is one of those grand philosophical questions, and we're getting it from a fawn in the beginning of this children's book. What is man? It reminds me of that passage from Hamlet in Act Two of Hamlet when he's talking with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. He has this long uh, monologue 
And he opens it saying, what a piece of work is man. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god. The beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. So he has this typically uh, Renaissance humanistic view of man as uh, the quintessential creature of the cosmos. One remembers Da Vinci's diagram of the Vitruvian man. And yet, Hamlet turns and says, and yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? And so there's the dichotomy is that is man merely a product of the soil or is man made in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, capable of great reason, great romance, bearing a soul that will live for eternity? And Tumnus says, you are human. What is man? In fact, Tumnus in his cave, in his little dwelling where he will lead Lucy back to, one of the books Lucy notices on the shelf is titled, Is Man a Myth? Which is a great book for Tumnus to have. Wondering what it means to be human. These humans that are prophesied and these humans that will sit on the thrones, and these humans that will reign in Narnia. It reminds us also of Psalm 8, verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And the parallels here are striking. Lucy is meant to be a reigning monarch in Narnia. She is not like the other animals. She's not like the other talking creatures in Narnia. She's not like the fawns or the dryads. She is something else entirely. She is human. And that's what causes so much fear in the white witch, that humans have destinies that are God-designed, God-initiated, God-ordained to reign, that we are rulers of the earth, the crown of creation, that we are meant to uh, govern the kingdom of earth, the kingdom of heaven. And so when Lucy is told, or is when she's asked by Tumnus if she is human, she says, of course I'm human, but we need to note what Lewis is doing here, that he is trying to put Lucy's experiences, discovering what it means to be human, this educational process of discovering who she really is, that Chesterton would remind us, we have all forgotten what we really are. We all live in the shadow lands. We have all forgotten what is real. It's like Plato's cave. We all have forgotten what is really real. That country of light that is behind us. We have all been enslaved and enchained to our mere shadow land. And Lucy is discovering the truth bit by bit of what it means to be not only Queen Lucy, her destination, but also what it means to be human. And that begins this interaction. It's something Lewis talks about in the abolition of man as well with his educational treatise on what it means to educate a person, a human being beyond just rational data. Uh, it goes much deeper than that. So Lucy and Tumnus speak. Uh, Tumnus invites her back to his house. He introduces the conflict. He informs Lucy that it is winter in Narnia and has been forever so long. 
And that's our, our conflict. We know it's the curse. He'll say it at the end of the chapter that the white witch has made it always winter and never Christmas. And so they return to Tumnus's cave, this house's wonderful uh, domestic situation with a fire and two chairs and some tea. It's a beautiful, typically English sort of setting. And Lucy is uh, cozied up in there and she is uh, being drawn closer to her new acquaintance, Mr. Tumnus. He is quite hospitable. But then there's a wonderful passage that I want to dwell on for a moment because it sets one of Lewis's characteristic focuses on the table. And it's when Tumnus starts explaining to Lucy what Narnia was like before the curse and all of the joy and all of the festivity and celebration that marked Narnian culture and Narnian life. Lewis says this, and really it was a wonderful tea. There was a nice brown egg lightly boiled for each of them and then sardines on toast and then buttered toast and then toast with honey and then a sugar topped cake. And when Lucy was tired of eating, the fawn began to talk. He had wonderful tales to tell of life in the forest. He told about the midnight dances and how the nymphs who lived in the wells and the dryads who lived in the trees came out to dance with the fawns, about long hunting parties after the milk-white stag who could give you wishes if you caught him, about feasting and treasure-seeking with the wild red dwarfs in deep mines and caverns far beneath the forest floor, and then about summer when the woods were green and old Silenus on his fat donkey would come to visit them and sometimes Bacchus himself and then the streams would run with wine instead of water, and the whole forest would give itself up to jollification for weeks on end. And this is a passage that is stunning. And it's one that Lewis returns to again and again throughout the stories. It's this beautiful depiction of Narnian life as one of revelry and joy and robust celebration and psalm singing and feasting, dances and laughter, uh, feasts, banquets, uh, rejoicing in the glory of Narnia and the name of Aslan. And for me, there is nothing that needs to be spoken of more in our current cultural climate, and especially in the church. There's nothing more significant to teach our children than to engage wholeheartedly in Christian revelry, that this is what we were made for, to celebrate and enjoy the pleasures and the bounties and the abundance of the feast of, the, of Christ, of the great story he's telling. It is a victorious story that we're living. Jesus wins. Aslan wins. Narnia will be redeemed. And this picture of Tumnus and the fawns and the dryads and the midnight dances is one of many throughout Narnia where Christian revelry is centered and focused, and it becomes this warm uh, invitation that is just dripping with honey and dripping with glory, and that is uh, a, a truly remarkable image that Lewis was capable of capturing. He does it again with Prince Caspian, where there are romps in the fields of Narnia with Aslan, and the children are laughing and smiling and dancing and dizzy with giddy joy and laughter at the truth and the beauty of Aslan's story. Uh, Paul Ford, who wrote A Companion to Narnia, 
discusses the sense of revelry in Narnia. He says this, this is Paul Ford. The spirit of revelry is a fundamental part of Narnian life, a correspondence to the medieval world in which feast days were plentiful. One of the sure signs of enchantment and the work of dark magic is an unending sameness and dreariness, such as can be seen in Underland and Charn, these other worlds. In the very beginning of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Tumnus informs Lucy that in the days before winter came to Narnia, the world was full of nymphs and fawns and dryads and wild red dwarfs and even Bacchus and Silenus. And Prince Caspian is filled with celebration, feasts, and dances. And it is significant that the chief meeting place in Narnia is the dancing lawn. Lewis certainly understood the flavors and the aromas and the music and the poetry and the the laughter and the glory of Christian revelry. He speaks of it in Surprised by Joy with this sense of sin-sucked, this inconsolable longing, this ache and desire for that which will satisfy us. John Piper talks about it in his book, Desiring God, where he says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. In Psalm 16, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, Paul says, that taking joy and taking heart in God as a body of believers, this communal celebratory tone and attitude and feature of our daily living is something that is part and parcel to the very core of what it means to breathe Narnian air. And this moment from Tumnus, it's so subtle where he reminds Lucy of what Narnia was like before the curse, I believe is meant to awaken within us a similar desire for what our world was like before the curse. Eden, the glories and the depths of Eden that we are all exiled from, and we have all forgotten that that was what we were meant for. We were designed for Eden, and it will be restored to us. Aslan is on the move. This is not just a thaw, but it promises to be a real spring. The winter is over. That is our hope and our joy, to remember who we really are and what we really are. And telling these stories, like Tumnus does to Lucy, telling the stories of what life was like before uh, the White Witch brought winter, this eternal winter and her tyrannous, uh, tyrannical rule. This is what Narnia was like. And Lucy is filled with joy. He plays his flute. And it says, the tune he played made Lucy want to cry and laugh and dance and go to sleep all at the same time. What a remarkable picture of the enchanting quality of reality. This is the life God has given us. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. But by the end of the chapter, we discover that Tumnus, uh, like Edmund, had a choice. Uh, he could uh, submit himself to the prophecy, submit himself to the reality. Or he could choose to be a traitor. He could, he could choose the treasonous route. He begins to do that here. But unlike Edmund in the early stages of the book, we see in Tumnus this sense of penitence, this sense of remorse and repentance where he uh, confesses to Lucy and seeks to make things right. At the end of the chapter, he explains that he had taken service under the white witch, that, she's, that he is in her pay. And Lucy says, the white witch, who is she? And Tumnus says, why it is she who has got all Narnia under her thumb. It's she who makes it always winter, always winter and never Christmas. Think of that. And when we get to the magician's nephew, we'll see the crossover here from Jadis, uh, 
the queen of Charn that Diggory awakens and who stumbles into Narnia, uh, that this white witch has a false reign in Narnia. But even her name, Jadis, uh, needs to be commented on. Consider the, the similarity of that to the word jaded, that sin and evil and the reign of the witch is ultimately stale and jaded and boring and pale. It's no accident that the white witch turns those she despises into stone. That is what she's capable of. Aslan is capable of turning stone into life, just like the word of God is able to take dirt and turn it into a man, uh, that God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into him, and he became a living soul. That's what Aslan can do, and that's what Aslan will do by the end of the novel. The white witch is only capable of stagnation, lifelessness, stone, sterility, right? It's always winter, no spring, no season of life, no season of growth and beauty and mating and joy and song. It's always winter, but with no Christmas, no selflessness, no giving, no jollity, no charity. Uh, this, This is a sterile wasteland that the white witch has created and over which she governs. And also remember, she'll tell Edmund when he, when she meets him, that she has no children of her own. And the white of the white witch is the whiteness of death, the whiteness of pallor, that she is dead and only capable of death. And what a great contrast to Aslan, who is life and capable of life and deeper magic from before the dawn of time. So Tumnus repents of his sin in uh, luring Lucy to his cave to kidnap her and hand her over to the white witch, but he is ultimately sacrificial that he does the right thing. And he leads Lucy back to the lamppost for her to return to the spare room through the wardrobe. And we are left to wonder what will happen to Mr. Tumnus. uh, Because as he says, even the trees are in her Uh, confidence that even the trees work for her and can hear and can know. At the very end, he informs Lucy. He says, if the white witch is especially angry, she'll turn me into stone and I shall be only a statue of a fawn in her horrible house until the four thrones at Carapiravel are filled. And goodness knows when that will happen or whether it will ever happen at all. And Mr. Beaver in a couple chapters will explain the prophecy to them. But it seems all of these Narnians know the prophecy. And there's some doubt creeping in regarding whether the prophecy will ever be filled. But we know that there is the sense of faith and desire and yearning for those four thrones to be occupied. And that Lucy is certainly one of them. But we also know the great fear of the White Witch. Why does she have orders? that if ever a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve enters into Narnia, that they are caught and handed to her. Why does the white witch fear that? Because she wants to try to thwart the prophecy, that she is terrified that that prophecy might come true. She is terrified of what we really are. She is terrified of the truth. And so anything she can do to squash it and quell it, she will try to take to thwart the plans of God, to try to frustrate the will of God and his predestined plan for all of human history. And so Lucy gives Tumnus her handkerchief and she is returned to the wardrobe 
and he asks for her forgiveness. Can you ever forgive me for what I meant to do? And she says, why, of course I can. It's this beautiful moment of reconciliation, one that foreshadows the ultimate reconciliation between Edmund and Aslan. And Lucy returns through the wardrobe, and that closes out the chapter where she comes back with having no time passed in England, but having met and uh, enjoyed the the presence with Mr. Tumnus and having jump-started this grand plot of what will happen now that humans have entered Narnia. So, thank you for listening. Next week, we will look at chapter three of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, titled Edmund and the Wardrobe. So, thank you for listening. The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.